Good morning. My name is Michael McCusker. Today, December 8th, 2022, is the centennial anniversary of the Great Astoria Fire of 1922, which was comparable in its local effect to the fires that swept through Rome in 64 AD, London in 1666, which was companion to the plague that ravaged that city, the infamous Chicago Fire of 1871, of which an errant cow was blamed, and the combined San Francisco Fire and Earthquake of 1906. The Astoria Fire burned for 22 hours, destroyed 32 blocks in the city's heart, and left at least 2,000 citizens homeless. Three persons died, one possibly an unrelated suicide, though that might be debatable, and damages were estimated at nearly $20 million in that era's accounting. The fire's origins have never been determined, most likely immolated in the fire. Aid poured in from all over. Portland sent firefighting equipment and $53,000. And New York millionaire Victor Astor, descendant of John Jacob Astor, whom the city was named for, sent $5,000. Walter Matola, who wrote for the Astoria Budget newspaper, commemorated the fire's 25th anniversary in 1947. He wrote that by 1922, quote, Astoria was an out-of-date city of deteriorating wooden buildings. Its waterfront had been built up for making money and handling grain, shanghaiing unwary sailors, farmers, and anybody else who seemed fit to crew sailing ships in the late 19th and early 20th century, and fleecing its large population of seamen, fishermen, and loggers. This waterfront empire was dying, Matilda wrote. The town still retained the name of a wide-open hangout, but the money in crime was gone. So was the big shipping of the 1870s and 80s. The cannery empire was past its prime. The Chinese and Hindus employed in the canneries and mills were gone and left behind their contemptible shacks. Quote, unquote. The fire started a few minutes after 2 a.m. on December 8th. It raged all day. The fire kept on coming, north, south, east, and west, often breaking out far ahead of the cauldron at the heart of the doomed city, Matilda wrote in his article. Power failed. Gas mains burst and blazed. Cars, trucks, wheelbarrows, and stooped backs and held out arms carried away goods from stores. Stacks of office furniture, phonographs, record boxes, and bundles of articles, fur coats, dishes, lodge paraphernalia, all the goods of the city were heaped in the back of the fire. They had to be moved again as the fire advanced. Looters snatched goods broke into stores, and carried off stocks in the guise of helping out. It was bright as day in Astoria, except in basements, inner rooms, and where smoke rolled thick. 
was Walter Matula. Headlines in Oregon newspapers that day told the story. Astoria's heart in ruins. City destroyed by flames. Fire raises 35 blocks. Astoria business district destroyed. Telephone girls stick until flames reach building. Stores and offices in fiery pile. Astoria swept by greatest conflagration in Northwest history. The Portland Telegram reported, with the heart of its business district wiped out by fire and with part of the lower residence district in ashes, one of its leading citizens dead and many more or less seriously injured, Astoria, the oldest town in the state of Oregon, at 11 o'clock today was only a bleak scar on the banks of the wide reaches of the Columbia River. Among the first obstacles the firemen encountered, which they must have long dreaded, was the city's plumbing system, which like the city itself and its streets built out over the Columbia River in wood, was little more than a medieval maze of wooden troughs, though most seemed to have been enclosed. When firefighters necessarily depended upon a reliable water supply for their hoses, these water mains were instead part of the firestorm rather than its solution, and their hoses burst on the hot wooden streets. Can you imagine how hard they must have worked to stop the fire? Every time they lost a street, they fought for the next one, breathing smoke, no respirators or face masks burning up in sweat from the inferno, yet chilled by a cold December night wind that fanned the fire. Block after block consumed by flames, forcing firefighters to retreat as the fire irresistibly advanced. Firemen fought to save City Hall and St. Mary's Hospital. Patients were removed to Astoria High School, Walter Matalo wrote. Where there was no water, dynamite was substituted. Hotels, dwellings, and street intersections went up, and the fire went on. Among buildings raised by the mad sweep of flames, that was the Portland Telegram, Weinhard Hotel, Beehive Department Store, Hafer Confectionery, J.C. Penney Store, Astoria Budget Newspaper Plant, Astoria Theater, Oddfellow Hall, First National Bank, Astoria Savings Bank, Western Union Telegraph Office, Merwin Hotel, Staples Motor Company, Elks Club, Astoria National Bank, Columbia Trust and Savings Company, Bank of Commerce, Scholarud's Dry Goods Store, Astoria Drug Store, Central Drug Store, Dayton Drug Store, Owl Theater, Liberty Theater, Star Theater, YWCA Building, Astoria Business College, Morning Astorian, North Star Hotel, Troy Laundry, Astoria Opera House, Methodist Church, Baptist Church, Central Fire Station, and the list goes on. Matala named a few of the Astoria firemen who fought the big fire. Mel Grimberg, Aruke Banksund, Doby Backlund, Os Manula, Henry Jochensen, Tiny Aragoni, Clarence McCoy, Dutch McCroskey, Frank Smart, Paul Kearney, Fred Lazell, 
Tony Antioch, Tim Aldrich, Harry Yeager, Fred Lazen, Arvid Heinenen, Jack Cochran, Victor Aulin, Sam Berg, Al Gracken, Leo Fernie, Al Davis, Jimmy Coffin, Walter Christofferson, Joe Schamberger, Wayne Osterby, and Fire Chief Charles Foster, veteran of the 1883 fire and newly elected vice president of the Pacific Coast Fire Chiefs Association. The three who died were Norris Staples, president of the Bank of Commerce and owner of Staples Motor Company, who dropped dead of a heart attack, pushing a car to safety. Jack Cornelison, a seaman aboard the tugboat Oneonta, who fell into the river, misjudging the distance to the 16th Street dock in the smoke, and a person identified by Matula as a logger whose body was found hanging the next morning under the Sanborn dock. Although the man's suspected suicide has been historically regarded as unrelated to the fire, a question might be asked if he killed himself after starting the fire, the origins of which, yet a century later, are a mystery. He remains as much a mystery as D.B. Cooper. By 6 a.m., all of Astoria that once stood on stilts over the river was burning, Matilla wrote. From then on, the fire was gradually put under control with some losses. Late in the day, snow fell over the black ruins of the old Astoria, but melted in the embers that glowed for weeks while the new Astoria was born. Astorians, all of them, as if their spirits had been tempered in fire, took on the task of rebuilding their city. In the blackest hour of destruction, there was no wailing voice of defeat. And that was Walter Matilla. The Portland Telegram said the same thing later that same day. Astoria is calmly listing its losses and already thinking how it will rebuild. The Telegram said in its lead article on page one that probably a total of 32 blocks in the retail heart of the city were destroyed beyond repair and around this is a fringe of partly damaged buildings, many of which will have to be torn down. At the end of the day, Astoria's heart was a smoldering ruin or had dropped into the river and sizzled. Three people were dead, hundreds homeless. City Hall on the east end survived, but the fire killed it as the center of municipal administration. A decade later, the city abandoned it for a downtown bank building built since the fire. Before the fire, the deteriorating downtown was slowly abandoned by business and politics eastward to a newer section of the city. The fire altered that migration, and the city center was resurrected on its ruins, similar to the regrowth of forests after fire. Compared to its hillside dwellings, downtown Astoria is relatively young, most of it having been reconstructed from the ruins of the Great Astoria Fire. Though the city repaired itself, substituting landfill for flammable pilings and piers along the riverfront, the boom days had long been over before the fire, and they never came back. At present, as a result of rather slapdash and ill-conceived redecoration of building fronts, as well as neglect and deterioration, the downtown area as a whole 
looked shabby and out of focus, despite heroic attempts to improve a few buildings. Recently, in 1979, the city council declared downtown a historical district. Not quite Walter Matala's vision of a city reborn from the flames. Astoria is in search of another renewal through salvage of its despoiled past. Old Astoria is the engine that drives present-day Astoria, manipulated by a self-promoting tourist industry that scrubs out the grime of the city's reckless history to display a Disneyland-like gay 90s fantasy while advertising Astoria as a museum without walls. The Big Fire of 1922, the fault line of Astoria's history, separating in public memory the boom times from the insipid, might realistically, and perhaps metaphorically, be called the city's high-water mark. Most contemporary Astorians probably do not think of the Big Fire of 1922 when they walk or drive through downtown on streets that were blackened rubble or fell into the river 100 years ago today. It is probably the same in war-blasted cities rebuilt since the world wars, new generations trotting upon unseen and barely remembered tragedies of the past. And now, from the Daily Toveri on December 8th, 1922, in Astoria, Oregon, fire destroys city. The business district of Astoria burned up this morning. All of 40 blocks of the business section of the city have been consumed by the conflagration. The fire started about 2 o'clock this morning in the basement of Teal's Pool Hall, which was near the Beehive Department Store on 12th and Commercial Streets. It is not known as yet how the fire originated. The fire spread under the streets, which in this section of the city are built on pilings. The fire broke up above the surface in three or four different parts of the city. When once above the surface, the fire spread rapidly in the face of a strong wind. The wooden buildings caught fire quickly and flamed up like tinder, spreading the fire from block to block in a few moments. The city is now a smoldering heap of ruins from Exchange Street to the waterfront and from 7th Street to 17th Street. In this area, all the buildings were burned except the Spexarth Building, 6th and Commercial Streets, and the Lower Columbia Creamery Plant, 9th and Duane Streets, which, being fireproof buildings, were not totally destroyed. The devastated area contained over 50 large buildings, such as hotels, large department stores, restaurants, office buildings, etc., which are completely burned to the ground. The city's four banks are a heap of ashes. About 40 garages, filled with new and used automobiles, were consumed by the angry flames. The total damage done by the conflagration will amount to over $30 million. The city fire department could not check the flames as they quickly spread from building to building. A call for help was sent to Portland. A fireboat from Portland arrived at 4 o'clock. More fire apparatus arrived from Portland on the 515 train. Three fire trucks also arrived in good time from Portland. By the joint efforts of the two fire departments, the conflagration has now been checked. 
it is impossible to say at this time how many persons have been killed in the fire, as reports concerning the fatalities are conflicting and unreliable. Among the dead are reported to be Mr. Norris Staples, president of the Bank of Commerce. A sailor from the bark Oneonta was drowned at the OWR&N docks as the roof of a building, burning building fell on him. Relief headquarters have been opened at the YMCA building. The Seaside Hotel at Seaside has been opened and is offering shelter for those who lost their homes. A free bus leaves the Y building, and all those wishing to go to Seaside are requested to call at the Y. Mayor James Bremner has called a general meeting of the businessmen and the city officials to meet at City Hall at 2 o'clock this afternoon. Relief measures will be discussed. And that was the Daily Toveri, December 8th, 1922, Astoria, Oregon, which was a very controversial newspaper put out as the accusation uh, has long been made by left-wing Finns. And now, by Ruth Marcus. Trump's call for suspending the Constitution is too dangerous to ignore. There was a time in the naive spring and summer of 2015 when I deemed Donald Trump beneath my notice and refused to write about him. Why soil myself, I thought, and also, surely he will fade away. I finally caved in, in July 2015, with this prescient sentence, do not worry about Donald Trump becoming president. There was a time in the increasingly appalling months and years that followed that I deemed Trump too dangerous to disregard, and I could not stop calling out his never-ending, ever-escalating outrages against American democracy. Mexican judges, enemies of the state, fake news, Muslim bans. Even a columnist gets tired of repeating herself. And so, during his final stretch in office, and in the years since, I mostly averted my gaze. I called out Trump last August when he warned darkly of riots in the streets, quote-unquote after the Justice Department's search of his Mar-a-Lago residence, and before that, in December 2020, when he released a 46-minute video rant assailing the election. But I mostly thought, why bother? Shaming targets and convincing readers are the columnist's goals. With Trump, no minds will be changed, and neither will his behavior. And yet, there are times when attention must be paid, if only to lay down a marker, if only, grandiose as this may sound, so historians will understand, this went too far. This cannot be allowed to stand without being denounced. I might have made this choice in the aftermath of Trump's dinner with anti-Semites and Nazi sympathizers. Who could have imagined in the time before Trump that a former president of the United States and declared candidate for president would so sully himself and the office. But I am moved now to write about Trump's latest post on his Truth Social Network 
because it is at least equally dangerous and even more insidious. So, with the revelation of massive and widespread fraud and deception, quote-unquote, in working closely with big tech companies, the DNC and the Democrat Party, do you throw the presidential election results of 2020 out and declare the rightful winner? Or do you have a new election, Trump posted? A massive fraud of this type and magnitude allows for the termination of all rules, regulations, and articles, even those found in the Constitution. Our great founders did not want and would not condone false and fraudulent elections. And he followed up, unprecedented fraud requires unprecedented cure. Pause to take this in. The former and would-be future president has suggested suspending the Constitution in support of his deranged belief that he won the election and that its results are subject to change. A man who took an oath to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution now has hijacked our great founders, and that's a quote, in the service of his megalomania. No. This is insurrection by social media, nothing, and certainly not imaginary fraud, capitalized or not, allows for the termination of constitutional guarantees. Trump is laying the groundwork for a coup. We can dismiss the post as just the latest Trumpian bluster, something he will never be capable of implementing. Yet the mere willingness to entertain and encourage extra constitutional action is alarming coming from a man who is seeking to return to office, which is why Trump's words must be highlighted and called out. I am past expecting Republican leaders to speak out. We know that for the most, their spines have collapsed and their courage reduced to a shrunken kernel. Trump says a lot of things, but that doesn't mean that it's ever going to happen, was the most represented David Joyce of Ohio, chair of Republican Governance Group, could choke out in response to questions by ABC's George Stephanopoulos. The White House was right to rebuke Trump. Attacking the Constitution and all it stands for is anathema to the soul of our nation and should be universally condemned spokesman Andrew Bates said in a statement. If anything, the word should have been issued in the name of the president himself. Others made more puzzling choices. For a full day, the New York Times, so far as I can find, made no mention of Trump's post. I assume this was not an oversight, but a deliberate decision not to let Trump hijack its product for his unpatriotic purposes. I get it but I'm glad the Times relented with a news report that Sunday afternoon. The episode embodies the paradox of dealing with Donald Trump. We do not want to give him oxygen, yet there are times we dare not ignore him. This is one. It should be neither excused nor forgotten. And that was by Ruth Marcus. Trump's call for suspending the Constitution is too dangerous to ignore, and she is deputy editorial page editor of the Washington Post. This is Michael McCusker. Dylan Hauser-Schalk is this program's engineer. Yesterday, 
December 7th, 81 years ago in 1941, was a pivotal day in history, a tale of two cities, so to speak. The Japanese aerial attack on Pearl Harbor and Honolulu that catapulted the USA into World War II, which ended in 1945, when America dropped the world's first atomic bomb on the Japanese city of Hiroshima, which, of course, was the advent of the nuclear age, nearly as consequential as the birth and crucifixion of a radical rabble-rouser two millennia past who preached peace and love, a carpenter nailed to a cross. The trajectory of a lie can be awesome and even horrifying. The contemptible Donald Trump's persistent fiction that he was re-elected president has coursed through insurrection and most recently his literal demand the Constitution be abolished for no other reason it refutes his worthless self to be crowned America's Caesar. Such an absurd, fatuous, fat frog who deems his grotesque self-deception capable of deceiving everyone else. In reality, his future might well be a jail cell for financial fraud rather than his real crime of political treachery.